Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dorsey Wright Podcast. Today is Thursday, December 26th. I'm Eric McArdle. And I'm Will Gibson. And day after Christmas, doing the podcast a little bit late today, but better late than never, as they say. Uh, Today, we want to talk a little bit about using ETFs in your investment practice. Why do you want to use ETFs? And then how do you use them? What are some good ways, good best practices for doing so? I know we've covered a lot about the market recently, uh, but one you know just quick update: hitting new all-time highs today for the S&P 500. Still generally in an overbought state for domestic equities, but overall looking pretty strong there. So you know again, just want to talk a little bit about kind of the mechanisms for how you might participate in the equity market or really in any market, right? Um, you know, and so we talk about ETFs. Uh, what are some of the reasons why we use ETFs, Will? Yeah, Eric. Uh, well, first of all, there's many reasons to using ETFs. Honestly, more than we'll be able to cover today, probably. Uh, but to begin, kind of just speaking broadly, perhaps the first thing you think about is the benefits of diversification. Uh, it's a big, hot keyword that we talk about in the investment industry, and perhaps you discuss with your clients, and its importance. And e- ETFs allow you to do that in a-, a number of manners, whether it be through style, whether it be through factors or even size. Mm-hmm. Um, so that said, just think logically here for a second. If you were to replicate the S&P 500 without the use of ETFs, it'd be a bit difficult to say the least, right? So we're going to go out and buy the roughly 500 securities that are in the S&P 500. And when those are removed, you'd have to go and sell those. Mm. Um, so it'd be difficult to say the least and tax inefficient to perhaps say more. And in fact, there's a study that was put out recently by InnoSight and they found that in 1965, the average tenure of companies in the S&P 500 was 33 years. By 1990, it was 20 years, and it's forecasted to shrink to approximately 14 years by 2026. Wow. So again, replicating that diversification and achieving uh, that kind of market beta exposure would be difficult, to say the least, through an in- in individual security perspective. What that tells you too, Will, is that you see a lot of changes in the stock and and really business landscape in the Mm S&P 500, right? The fact that you've had companies come and go over that time and really Mm -hmm. change the index, you know, that's kind of a testament to the fact that it would be tough to be an active manager and uh, tough to pick stocks in that environment when you have so much turnover, right? Right, right. And kind of speaking to that difficulty of active management, there's also the component of systematic and unsystematic risk, perhaps um, contributing to those companies being taken out or added to the in, in index as a whole. Mm-hmm. Uh, systematic being that which would affect all companies or the market as a whole, and then unsystematic being that would that which would affect the individual security more than the others. Um, so for an example on that, if we're looking at Apple, popular name, I believe it's the largest right now in the S&P 500 in terms of market cap. So Apple in and of itself has an R risk of approximately 2.3, I believe. And that, again, is looking at the three-year standard deviation of Apple relative to the three-year standard deviation of the S&P 500. It's a measure of volatility. Or a measure of risk, as we'll say. And the S&P has an R risk of one. Correct, correct. So So about a little more than two times the volatility. Right, right. So roughly two times the volatility. Now, if you were to want to achieve some sort of exposure to Apple, 
under the mindset or under the goal of diversification, the Qs could be an alternative. Or Apple is still, I believe, the highest weighting in the Qs. And by purchasing such, you would receive some of the participation that you would get in Apple, but you would dilute your risk. So the Qs have an R risk of 1.24, right? So you look at Apple, it's got an R risk of about 2.3, whereas you get the Invesco QQQ or NASDAQ 100 ETF that dials that R risk back significantly, but you still get that, that exposure in Apple, which you're trying to achieve, right? Right, right. Okay, interesting. So, you know, the other aspect too, you know, we talked about the difficulty in building a portfolio or an ETF uh, on your own, right? If you were to go buy 500 or 100 different positions, um, you know, from a cost-effective standpoint, you can get the S&P 500 now for nearly free, right? We were looking at the iShares S&P 500 ETF, ticker IVV. It's got a 0.04% expense ratio or four basis points. And when we look at that and you say, okay, if you've got $100,000 in IVV, that's going to cost you $40 a year to own the S&P 500. I mean, that's as cheap as it's ever been, right? So from a cost-effective standpoint, to get that diversification, you know, really a great time to be investors right now and to use these products, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and so when we talk about the diversification aspect, we talk about the costs, there are other aspects that come into play. Uh, the liquidity, right? An ETF is a, a, an investment vehicle that's liquid on a daily basis versus, say, an open-ended mutual fund where you have to wait until the end of the day to get your order filled uh, through the desk at the mutual fund company. You know, an ETF is is preferable for a trader who needs to get liquidity throughout the day, right? Um, and in addition to that, there are, many of them are also optionable. So if you have exposure in those ETFs or in those areas of the market, a lot of times you're able to hedge that exposure using options or create synthetic positions uh, long or short using options as well. Um, and then finally, we talk about you know, the tax efficiency of the products, right? Via the creation or, and redemption mechanism underlying the ETF vehicle, they're extremely tax efficient in that any of the trades or reconstitutions that occur in those products, generally you're not going to see a capital gain pass through to the shareholder. So extremely beneficial from that standpoint. And, you know, combine all of these aspects and you've really got, in, in my opinion, the best trading vehicle for the average retail investor. You know, the ETF is really um, allowed investors to access different areas of the market in what, what is arguably the most efficient way possible. So a, a lot of benefit there. Now, when we talk about taking the why and then moving it forward to, okay, how do we use these? What's one way we can can simplify the process using the Dorsey Wright methodology, Will? Yeah, so several. So to begin, the way that we, we'll look at ETFs is looking at the fund score. Mm-hmm. And the fund score, as you're probably aware, is comprised of 19 individual components. So as we would say, that really takes into the technical weight of the evidence for the individual ETTF. And it breaks out those 19 components into three broad categories, being trend, relative strength to the market, and then relative strength to the peer group. So you're getting that overall technical picture through trend, market, and then peer group, and it's displayed neatly and concisely, we'll say, in a 
fun score located at the top left of, of the chart. So you can quickly come and see how the fund scoring from a technical perspective. And we use this fund score and translate it through into some of our models on the platform. And we build out the methodology through some of the fund score models, which encompass a variety of different styles. Is that correct? Yeah. And, and so, you know, one thing to add to that is that, that fund score, which does a really nice job of giving you an, an easily identifiable, you know, metric of strength or weakness, they range from zero to six, with six being the best. And we consider a three or better to be acceptable, or a four or better is optimal. And so if you take that score, which again is very comprehensive with those points that you mentioned, and you maybe look at, okay, is this a, a three or better, and is the score direction or the general you know, trend of the score itself, is that positive or negative? It gives you a lot of information right there, right? As to whether or not the picture is strong for the fund, and then whether it's improving or, or weakening, right? And so you mentioned, okay, we've got that on an individual basis, right? So you can come in and make a pretty quick decision using the fund score, looking at an individual uh, ETF. But if you wanted to systematize this process, you know, across a wider inventory, you could use our models, right? So, you know, as you mentioned, we have some that rely on the fund score solely. Uh, those are our FSM or fund score method models. Um, and those are, are terrific in, you know, a, an easy way to scale out this relative strength-based process across inventories of ETFs and mutual funds uh, with different focuses, right? In addition to the fund score models, we also have RS switching models. So looking at uh, one versus another in terms of an ETF and determining which one is strong. And then we have matrix-based models, which take an inventory of ETFs and say, okay, what are the best in the group? And then, you know, let's uh, allocate accordingly based on that. So, you know, you, you take this powerful vehicle, right? Low cost in many cases, tax efficient, diverse. You add a rules-based process around it. And now you're able to focus your exposure using that terrific vehicle, you know, toward a sector that's in favor or toward an asset class, right? Um, on our system, we have, you know, equity, fixed income, alternatives, right? All different types of styles of these models that can be used to implement that process. So, you know, I think you, you take take everything good about the ETF vehicle, and you put a process behind it, and you know, now you're rolling, right? Certainly, yeah. And we've actually been touching on this in our 12 days of Christmas topic about better improving your process going forward into 2020. And things that Eric was mentioning, we've touched on that about ETF models and the fund score itself, how it works, how it's calculated, and furthermore, just ways to implement this into your practice and make it scalable and practical going into the new year. So make sure to check out those if you have the chance. Absolutely. And that's the goal, right? We want to make this as easy as possible. There's a lot of noise in the markets. Um, so anything we can do to try and focus on what's important, i.e. what is strong and avoid what is weak, uh, makes this a much more fun experience for everyone, right? So, Will, last podcast of the year. Thanks for ending it with a bang. For you all, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next year.